For this episode of What's the Tease, burlesque star, entrepreneur, designer. We at the house of Oh Baby like to call her mother, the phenomenal Miss Tosh. Welcome to the show, Miss Tosh. Hi, so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Cool. So Tosh, buckle up, okay? We're going to go on a little road trip here to begin with. You're originally from Venice Beach in California, right? Yeah. Yeah, and you moved to Chicago and, and studied at the School of the Art Institute. Had you already... See, you've done your homework. I have. I try. <laughs> <laughs> had you already had an affinity for vintage glamour at this point? And is this what led you to pursuing your passion for fashion? I, you know, I always had um, an affinity for glamour and old Hollywood. And, you know, growing up in L.A., I, you know, would watch the old movies and see the way the city once was. But growing up, it, it wasn't... Um, the city that I wished I was in because I didn't see any of the glamour and the old cars and these kinds of things. And so, you know, I always had a, an interest and a curiosity for a time when people really were inspired by glamour. Um, it wasn't until I was about 13, 14, my dance instructor, Debbie Allen, mm -hmm. um, she introduced me to videos of Sally Rand and Josephine Baker and many other you know dance legends but those women really stood out to me because it was amazing to see such a inspirational dance figure such as debbie embrace these you know images of these topless women mm -hmm. performing and and telling me how iconic they are and i just was so enamored by their beauty but also their bravery and their stories so it developed an interest in burlesque and burlesque history and i um, hadn't yet in my mind decided that's what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. but I had a, a, a love for it. And yeah. at that time, when I was deciding what I wanted to do once I was 18, right? Because <laughs> um, you're going to decide the rest of your life at that age, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, that time, that's what I know, thought. Because <laughs> it's planned, totally. Oh, of course. That is the year. No, um, I, I had, you know, trained my whole childhood to be a dancer and so I was hoping you know to either be a ballerina or an Alvin Ailey dancer and mm -hmm. and I, at that point I was very strong and was dancing like 40 hours a week at the studio after school and I injured myself and it was bad timing and I I couldn't do any of the company auditions so I was thinking, okay, well, you know, I really, I really want to go do something on my own. I want to get out of here. So I, I had always drawn and painted as hobby. So I had all, all this collection of work. And so I just was like, whatever, I'm going to just go, go and apply for art schools and see how <laughs> it goes. And I, and it went really well. And uh, the Chicago, you know, invited me to come to that school. So I did. And that was a, a weather shock. I had never been in <laughs> negative hell weather like that before. <laughs> yeah. I ended up living there for seven years. But um, and then, you know, I was in this school as a painter. So, you know, my identity was shifting. I was a ballet dancer. I was a painter. Mm -hmm. And then as a, a painting student, I always dressed up 
and I love glamour and I love the transformational quality of it and the freedom to kind of create what I wanted to look like and be. And so, you know, you're thinking I'm in art school, I have freedom to do and be whatever I want to be. Yeah. But I was met with a lot of criticism by the painting department. And they all just kind of bullied me a bit for dressing too fancy to paint a painting. And I was like, what the hell is this? Oh, my gosh. Because, like, there's a certain aesthetic that uh, painters have to uphold in order to be taken seriously. Oh, my. Exactly. And I was just like, what the hell am I doing here? I go, I could be painting in my garage. What am I doing? So I became really good friends with some professors and everybody really assumed I was a fashion student and initially I took it as an insult which was my ignorance I was like I am a painter (laughs) (laughs) and um and it was just because I didn't know anything about the fashion world you know I I assumed it was all about you know portraying unrealistic ideas of beauty and then I learned that it was actually quite the opposite that these people embrace creative expression. And so I applied for the fashion department, which is a rigorous interview, quite intimidating. But I was also going in there with the the attitude of, well, it might, probably isn't going to work out anyways. <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, whatever. And so, you know, I'm in there and I'm just very blunt and straightforward because, you know, I, I'm not feeling the pressure of, not getting in because I assumed I wouldn't. And then I get into the department and I quickly learn how much work goes into the construction of garments and Mm. the skill and the math and the creativity. And it blew my mind. And I actually found my, my dance education and my, my affinity for glamour um, and math all found a home in creating garments. And so that was my school life. And then in my alter ego, in my nighttime life, I was kind of taken under the wing of a lot of drag queens in the community as a little gay glamour kid, club mm-hmm. kid. And my dear friend, Sissy Spastic, was like, you know, you should perform with us. And, you know, this is my first exper- experience being in drag bars and clubs and and yeah. so, you know, and we're, we're hopping on bar tops, right? Doing <laughs> crazy stuff. I used to get like pierced with sparklers on the bar. I mean, I did some crazy <laughs> shit. <laughs> I'm like, people have no idea. I'm like the bananas PG. Like I did some wild stuff that I'm sure wouldn't be legal for me to do in public. <laughs> but I think we've always suspected that there's a punk rock side to Miss Tosh. Fuck yeah. To all that glamour oh, yeah. on. <laughs> Oh, it was this, it was this performer. Her name was Quirella Fistelot. And I thought she was such a babe and she's on, and I used to staple gun her (laughs) on the bar with different things. And I was like, and you know, she was such a tease. She never was actually into me, but, Mm -hmm. but I just thought she was such a babe. And, and, and then she was like, you know, piercing herself and she's like do you want to be pierced and I, like it was like a quick conversation <laughs> while we're on stage and I think it was fourth of July and I was like light me on fire <laughs> <laughs> she like lit me with sparklers and then she's like grabbing my boobs and I have implants and I was like don't pop my in <laughs> <laughs> oh it was such a moment oh my god I mean I used to like pour all sorts of crazy like neon paint and mm-hmm. honey and oh we did crazy stuff and you know 
the drag community that really embraced me to be creative and eccentric were a lot of the queens that went quite far on um, drag race, but this was like pre-drag race before all that entered our world. So really we were just trying to find some color and some adventure in a icicle of a city. So that was our thing is that, you know, it was who's going to bring the look. So then I, I ended up, creating a, a, an event called Looks with a friend um, in Chicago. And it was really kind of raising the bar for LGBTQ and queer artists in Chicago because we were demanding more than lip singing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that encouraged a lot of creativity and it was a lot of fun. But my two worlds didn't meet each other until I'd say like four years ago because I had, you know, my performance world mm-hmm. um and then I had my academic fashion world and then also I was working in a strip club so you know I had a lot of alter ego <laughs> part of my life so they all kind of merged into becoming who and what I am now mm-hmm. um but you know once you leave a university the same thing oh this is what I'm going to do forever I'm going to go be a pattern maker to some designer who's going to throw fax machines at me and yell at me and you know <laughs> oh yeah how charming yeah yeah right oh I've had friends tell me stories I was like okay so I'm gonna go slave away at Alexander McQueen or yeah. or Marc Jacobs and make clothes that nobody ever knew I made or something so yeah. I, I was kind of turned off by that part of the fashion world with um, new graduates so I was like you know what I'm gonna make my own thing and you know it's mm-hmm. very also not traditional for fashion students to do that right off the bat and so my performance career started gaining attention while I was in Chicago, I think because I was just embracing other people, a part of my story. It wasn't yeah. just about me becoming a burlesque star. That wasn't a mission. It was about me and the community I was a part of and how we were kind of breaking down and pushing what was expected in these club kids scenarios and so my burlesque journey took me in a direction away from traditional fashion design and then I was able to use my skills to create my own act but then also in time create a fashion label for my fans and friends and people that love glamour so you know everything that you do somehow plays in even if it feels so random you just got to kind of follow your joy. Yeah. And if that means sparklers on bar tops, then do it. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, like, in the beginning, when you were sort of doing these performances, were you identifying with that art and were you calling it burlesque? I was not necessarily calling it burlesque. I was mm-hmm. inspired by burlesque artists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all were disrobing and performing but we we weren't categorizing it as burlesque and as drag we were more saying this is a space for expression and you can utilize your musical talent your dancing talent your design talent you know whatever it was we were embracing each other to to be as creative as possible there was no real like box that we were put in Mm -hmm. And so I think that also, you know, being a burlesque performer born from a club kid, drag, 
culture, I think it's really kind of, it's really informed my mission and what I do in the burlesque world. So it's really always been about me trying to uplift that theme. What other dance styles have you done over the years? I have studied over 13 styles of dance um, since I was three until I was about 17. Yeah. I I performed, you know, ballet was the core, as it is with most dancers, because mm-hmm. it's, it's just a good foundation for you. But I studied flamenco. I was taught African tribal dances by a, a man named Titus Bozo from Africa. And we had uh, African drummers. Mm-hmm. I, you know, did salsa dancing, swing dancing. We did, you know, modern, contemporary, jazz, hip hop. Like crumping, twerking, you know, I used to dance with Tommy the Clown, who initially, he was the creator of crumping here in LA, which is a dance style that was developed to, you know, get kids um, out of gangs and handle their battles through dance. Mm-hmm. It was, it was an amazing time being a part of Debbie's dance school, because she brought in people from all over the world to share different cultures with us. I I studied Dunham for about eight years, um, which is a dance form created by Catherine Dunham. Yeah. Um, Amazing woman. And so it's given me the gift of getting to learn about different cultures through dance. And that, I think, also has given me such an appreciation for diversity um, at a young age. Yeah. Amazing. The next thing I wanted to know was, like, what of your training from Debbie Allen do you still incorporate in your performances today? Once you've danced that long, your your movement, you're kind of brainwashed to move that way. Yeah. <laughs> no matter what you do. Indy laughs at me. She goes, whenever you're on the phone, you're on your tiptoes. And I'm like, see, it's just, it's just in me. I think, you know, the most important part of that dance education was the discipline I have and also the ability to improvise on the spot, whether it's in movement or in anything else. My endurance and my ability to tolerate pain, like even if it means I'm sewing a hundred head wraps mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the repeating of that, like these skills that come from dance that are unexpected because they're not necessarily performance and movement oriented, but they create a discipline in my behavior. And, and I think that's really been the gift of it. And for example, like the ability to walk on stage and go, oh, okay, now this stage is way smaller than I thought. You know, how am I going to, in a few seconds before the music starts, yeah. reconfigure my whole number? You know, and so I think it's given me a skill to be adaptable in different circumstances. And that's something I think a lot of my burlesque students aren't aware of until they're in that moment and I try to prepare them for it I go so what do you do when you're in this scenario and they're like oh didn't think about that the live performers journey especially in burlesque is the constant problem solving that we have to go through once we're in the moment 
because it's like you're setting yourself up for so much wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> <laughs> because there is so much wardrobe in the beginning. So much wardrobe. It, it, it's a story told by wardrobe and there will be malfunctions. What do you do? And so I think my dance training has really prepared me for that. <laughs> I'm kind of like seeing how all the elements, as you said, like in your life of uh, uh, training towards burlesque and having to deal with those. Isn't it uh, interesting? Hey, Definitely. Everyone's journey is a bit different, but all the little things we do are not a waste of time if we don't become the ballerina, if we don't become, you know, the mm -hmm. McQueen assistant designer. It's not a waste of time to invest in these experiences of, you know, learning fashion or learning dance. It can find a home somewhere, all of the things we learn. Yeah. And it makes us more interesting. What are some of the attributes of Marlena Dietrich and her career that has inspired you as a modern-day glamazon and performance mm. artist? She captivated me once I saw the film of her in her tuxedo singing to an audience of other tuxedoed men with mm -hmm. the one woman in the audience where she steps over and she deflowers her before asking permission <laughs> and then asked her, may I have this? And then kisses her. And I just was like, wow, she's such a badass motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, she is totally got this room entranced by her glamour and her presence. Mm -hmm. And she's quite upfront, but these people might not be aware, sending them a message. And I was just like, this is brilliant. What a brilliant way to use glamour to package in the glamour bow a message of queer identity. I was just like, wow, this is brilliant. Yeah. And so that is kind of the root of my, I think, most popular burlesque number, which is my healing act. Yeah. Um, the tuxedo, an homage to her, also homage to Josephine, but that's really more an homage to marlena and but i was like you know the overtness of just taking this flower is mm -hmm. beautiful but i think i'm a little more overt so i used the banana <laughs> 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 and i was like you know i'm so sick and tired of people questioning my queerness mm -hmm. and you know i'm just going to lay it out for you and it became such an entertaining act for me personally, almost maybe in a selfish way, because it became a social experiment for me. Mm -hmm. Because everyone's like, oh, you must pre-plan. I was like, oh, no, no, no. I just go out there and we, we see who we get when I pick you, you know. Yeah. And so I pick somebody and I, and I don't discriminate. I pick everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and it's really fun getting the white cis men up on stage that are so eager to drop to their knees when I ask them to and then yes. pull out the banana. And they're so overcome by all the phallic and male imagery. But mm -hmm. I'm like, but it's me, you know, yeah. and it's just the banana. You eat bananas, I'm sure. So, Is you know, that what you're telling them? <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I don't say shit. I just hold it there and just see what they do. And then yeah. sometimes people get way into it and they're mm -hmm. like showing off. It's so interesting to see what happens to a person when you break the fourth wall, you bring them yes. on stage and you offer them a scenario and they have the power to choose what they would like to do. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out. It hasn't worked out a few times. The, the 
best part about it is the willingness of everyone. Everyone gets on their knees. And I think that's so interesting. So when it doesn't work out, like, does somebody not eat the banana? Yeah. And then my, my bit is, well, you're already on your knees. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, you know, there's been a few people. I have only gotten one person who's allergic to bananas. Oh, and that was unfortunate. Okay. So she, she explained. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it, 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 I'm not forcing anybody to do anything, yes. offering a situation. And it's, and it's really entertaining um, for me, too, because I don't know what I'm going to get. But Marlena's cleverness is what inspired me. Mm-hmm. But I think my, this is me, you know, I, I am a, a queer person and I, identify with my own phallic symbols even though I am glam you know Mm -hmm. I also have my gentry side and my masculine side that um I wanted to show in the same way Marlena did where it's packaged in this pretty glamour yeah and Mm -hmm. funny that you brought that act up um because as an artist you you have often at times you challenge gender tropes um within your performance like your tuxedo act um, what are some of the aspects of femininity that often go unseen? Within within my performances or in general? Yes, within your performances, but I think it also kind of relates to mm. h- how you feel about it in general. Specifically, you know, people look at you and they question your queerness, you know, because mm, people yeah. have their own ideas of what that is. I think now in time, a lot of the things I faced early on in my career have been dismantled and seen but back to when I started performing I was really faced with things like well you don't look gay Mm -hmm. or prove it or oh you just haven't had the right dick (laughs) (laughs) I'm like oh and you are so superior and you know my my whole answer to that was well your girlfriend hasn't had my dick yet so Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) so you know the, the idea, and that would shock people because my appearance for them was so feminine. And so I, I don't think it's as easy as masculine and feminine. And I think, I think that femininity still gets pinpointed into this place of fragility yeah. and, and obedience. And we see more and more now, I think, in popular culture and and shows we see more powerful feminine stories being told right Mm -hmm. and I think that really helps people change the way they view femininity Mm -hmm. and there isn't anything wrong with being delicate you know but I think there has been a lack of representation of like power and femininity at the time when I started my career and since then I think because of not just me but lots of people we have created a new story about what femininity is. And then also masculinity can be delicate and fragile yeah. and, and beautiful too. And that we all carry a sense of duality with our own feminine and masculine parts of ourselves, that it's not just something that describes the genitals you were born with. Mm-hmm. So, or like a socialized outward representation you know, exactly. Pants equals exactly. the man wears the pants and the ladies wear the dresses. Yeah. And have long and hair. And it just shows, exactly. And it just shows how, you know, I'm not the woman to invent wearing a tuxedo. 
there even before Marlena and just women were wearing tuxedos, you know, to mm-hmm. counteract society's idea of what a woman in pants means. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing to me that even now, me walking out with pants and a banana is still shocking for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just shows how deep those those tropes are in our subconscious and in our culture. Yeah. And for me, when I was growing up, just kind of going a little bit back, I, I didn't really have a pop culture person that I was aware of that I could relate to. And of course, now getting growing older, I, I can see the history of the people that that would have been more inspiring to me as, as queer idols if I had access to them, but I didn't. So yeah. in my fantasy, I was like, why can't I be glam? And I love these old Hollywood starlets, but why can't I be gay as fuck? Yeah. <laughs> At the same time. At the same time. And, yes. you know, and, and it's just clothes. You put them on. So it's not, you know, I'm just going to put on what I want to put on and how much controversy and and emotions it stirred up and people just viewing me whether I am performing or walking on the street mm-hmm. I I realized oh there's a lot that needs to be dismantled and stories that need to be told that aren't heard taking on the silhouette of the Hollywood bombshell which is also a trope and something we we know and see and identify with certain ideas and then flipping her on her head and doing things that she wouldn't normally do in a performance setting, you know, but still paying homage to that. So I play with the idea of like these tropes, but then through me just being myself and the actions I take in my page boy hair and my tuxedo Mm. changes the story for people. And whether they're aware of it or not up front, it's just entertaining for most. And then, Mm -hmm. For others, it goes deeper and they identify with the story I'm telling. And all is okay, but it it is like a subliminal message that is, I'm glad, been well-received well and people got it. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, somebody might not even get what the hell I'm saying, but here we are. <laughs> I'm so happy that everyone understands um, and and tells me how that act affected them, which might not have been my intention, but it, it adds to the story of seeing the blonde in this way. You know, it, it, it changes the narrative at being this kind of queer woman, you know? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So is that why um, it is significant for you to include LGBTQ Glambassador as part of your bio? One, it's important that people know that I am a part and support the LGBT community. And mm-hmm. that was something that I was coined by um, my friends in the club. They called me the Glambassador mm-hmm. um, because I was so active in making sure everybody was paid fair, uh, <laughs> paid fairly by these clubs, represented everybody on the, the spectrum of LGBTQ that we that we were all getting the right kind of recognition and pay for um, the work we were doing. And so my friends was like, well, you're like the LGBTQ ambassador. Mm -hmm. You're over here (laughs) representing. 
And so I, I keep that a part of my title. It's one, because it's nostalgic and affectionate to me, but two, I think it also, when people are introduced to my page and don't know what I do, it's more than just me putting a pride flag. I feel like I really advocate mm. for this community and that this community is filled with glamour and hey I think even created glamour so (laughs) (laughs) it is important to me include that but now and as my career I shift I have now become more of a mother to the younger generation which I love um I have so many children (laughs) you know you're at the house of a baby we call you We are very grateful you for your presence and your openness and your existence um, in the art that you do. And the amount of time, say, from 2009 to now, how much has changed because of our community is really incredible. We've really unapologetically shown up and said, oh, no, 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 you're not going to put us into a box. We are infinitely diverse amongst our community and um and unique and that there isn't one type of way of being a lesbian or being pansexual there is an infinite way to express yourself and that it's just very individual experience and i think the general public is starting to see that in a way that hasn't been shown before Mm -hmm. do i think everybody's on board no but (laughs) they they have to see it it's not hidden we're not hiding and I think it's powerful and and I'm excited that uh you know a big drive for me to do what I do was you know I I didn't see anyone like me in popular culture and I was like well I'm just going to be my glamorous lesbian superhero myself Mm -hmm. and um in doing that the messages I received from people that said they were like me I was like, I felt so alone and I was so connected with, with people all over the world. They're like, I'm like you too. And I'm like, this is wonderful. It really, the, the give no fucks and bravery attitude I think I had really connected me with the tribe of people internationally that I really felt alone for most of my life as a kid. Yeah. And so up until that point, I was like, wow, there's a lot of glam bombshell queer superheroes out there. Yeah. <laughs> So it, it, it's been very exciting. So this is a bit of a long segue into um, a different topic. But basically, like a couple of uh, years ago, I kind of toyed around with this idea of doing a YouTube channel called Dike It Yourself. And yeah. like the idea, of course, was, you know, as a, as a queer brown girl growing up, I had interests outside of what was like deemed appropriate for my gender. So yes. <laughs> the idea of the channel was to do a series of videos teaching the basics of like car mechanics, you know, how to change a tire or like home improvement, oh my God, yes. you know, how to wire a plug of an appliance, like that kind of a thing. Yes. And then I love that. <laughs> maybe, we, maybe someday I'm pretty sure it like it already exists. But anyway, like I, I thought about it several years ago and like it was going to be me and my buddy and we were, you know, like show all the women and the queers of the world who always like kind of get shortchanged every time we go to mm-hmm. any kind of auto body shop and we need it like simple things get done in our car and you're not really sure if people are taking you for a ride or not oh you know? yeah so it's just you like, don't know yeah so it's just like mm-hmm. okay it's cool we got this we can actually do it ourselves 
Um, oh, I love it. Psych it yourself. Well, <laughs> I, I love that. You it's should do it. Even if it's done, do it your way. Love that. <laughs> so this is, of course, leading into your um, quite skilled as a handy woman. <laughs> oh, thank <laughs> you. Know? you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you style your own hair, you do your own makeup, you've been known to make some of your own stage props. And I want to know what is the most ambitious project you've ever taken on when it comes to building a prop for a performance? Oh, oh you know, that's a really good question. Everybody that knows me would be like, everything she does. <laughs> <laughs> I am guilty of being overly ambitious. I know that. Um, but, <laughs> okay, so I can think of a million projects that I was overly ambitious. I, <laughs> well, the, how about the saga of the unicorn prop? Because yeah. it wasn't what she is today. She has had many, many um life cycles uh, life cycles <laughs> um so the the you know i got because i was living in chicago and i was really broke and i was just like i just want to have you know one of these jeweled costumes i, I just like would just feed my my obsession with tiny details i'm like oh i need to do this and i'm like how in the hell am i going to afford a prop and a costume and is anybody going to want to see it once it's done? I might be nuts and just have this in my house forever. <laughs> and so I was like, is it worth seeing it? I was like, I there's something in me that's making me say do it. Mm -hmm. So I did. I don't think I ate much but peanut butter and jelly and toast for a few months, but I did it. And I acquired a carousel horse from a company in Wisconsin. I got my friend to drive me to go get it. Mm -hmm. And it's just the standard plastic carousel horse that Cirque du Soleil and all these places use. But for me at the time, it was, you know, quite a bunch of money to drop $400 on a yeah, yeah. unicorn. I was like this, I am nuts. <laughs> <laughs> and so um, I took it home, so excited, painted it, failed at painting it, peeled away the painter bought, failed at painting the carousel. Oh horse. yeah, the paint because yeah, because I was painting because I was painting paint on plastic. I'd never uh, done that before. Yeah, yeah. It was just peeling off, and you know, I, I was just trying to figure it out. And I bought a piece of, I should have bought something different, but I bought a piece of metal plumbing pipe and then drilled it to a piece of plywood, which was idiotic. <laughs> <laughs> Put the horse on it, and I'm like, I want it to. Thin, but how the hell is this going to work <laughs> oh my god and I and I performed it at this charity thing I organized at a restaurant it was quite small and I put it out in the middle of the floor and I well got on it and I'm standing on it and it's swinging right to left oh dear. and it's <laughs> everyone's just cringing like is she going to die we have to catch her and it was just a nightmare and you know I just didn't care. I was like, I'm just going to, we're going to just figure it out, you know, mm -hmm. and we're going to, to see how this goes. And, you know, in time, that project has taught me so much. She is never going to display again. She spins and she's solid and it's secure. And it taught me about metal and connected me with people. And that was mm -hmm. really, really ambitious of my personal project. That was nuts. Yeah. <laughs> so like, I mean, did you get help in the end? just to make sure that it was secure. I am really good at lots of 
woodworking and things like this. I am not a welder. Yeah. So yes, okay. I I got the help of a welder. Excellent. Do I think I I would learn to weld and I'd be like, sure, hand me the torch. Let's figure this out for sure. I'm totally Flash that dance person. But, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I I have always had this desire to build things and my I lived in an apartment before the house I'm in now and the people that indulged me in my parking spot in the apartment building I used as my like workshop and the things I would build down there mm-hmm. my neighbors were so tolerant but now that I have a home and a yard I think I was so excited that's why you saw all my projects I'm like I'm gonna build a kitchen nook with storage and put hearts all over it. <laughs> Oh, it looks stunning. I'm so excited about it. I I can't believe I made it so great. You know, and so I think, I think there's so much knowledge available for us online. And with Mm -hmm. COVID, we've learned that we can educate and access each other in ways we didn't really probably know we could before. And there's so much information we can share with each other. And um, my neighbor calls me the YouTube lady, because I'm just like, how do you how do you hang up the chandelier yeah. you know because I can't have people over so uh, you know yeah. learning electrical learning these things and I think a lot of female identifying people mm-hmm. are taught with the idea of fragility right mm-hmm. we're taught that it's really hard because it we're not strong enough or it's too complicated for us which then tells us that we're again weak and not as smart as our male counterpart counterparts mm-hmm. and I was so intimidated for example even up until this year by electrical work and that shit is so easy <laughs> I'm like excuse me I was like what the hell paying somebody a hundred bucks to yeah. come in here what the hell I was like oh my god I go I should be an electrician I'm gonna go make bank <laughs> you know and, and it, all it took was a YouTube, you know, lighting the pilot in your house. These are life skills that so many women and female identifying people have been told they cannot do yeah. because they are simply female. Yeah. And it is awful. And it is not rocket science to do a lot of these things, like changing a tire. You should know yeah. how to do that because what if your tire pops and you don't have somebody to come help you? You should yeah. know what do and it's within your capabilities as long as you just you know it's just like as long as you know the basics and you're confident in that it's like a really simple procedure to do and all women and it's not about strength or anything you know you just need to have the right tools and it's like yeah they may sit Mm -hmm. in your car for like five years but that one time when you need it you're gonna be so glad you have it and it's gonna be a breeze exactly and i and i don't know too if you've experienced this too where it's like oh well a lady doing that stuff is you know nothing wrong with being manly but it's like almost like a like an insult and you're like yes I am I am this is my masculine identity this is my strength and my my power and if you want to call that masculine then for sure that is what I'm Mm. embracing in myself but we all have the capability it's just a tool yeah and the same way a needle and thread, you know, women's yes. work, quote unquote, is a tool, but men can, men can and do use those tools as well. They're not gendered. And it makes me so upset that we gender tools yeah. because it's something inanimate that objects. is inanimate objects that 
or, you know, if you can pick it up, you can use it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And especially power tools. Let's talk about how lazy those are. You don't have to do shit. Yeah. <laughs> Just press like the button. Intimidated by plug it, it in. Yeah, you push a button. Good to go. It's okay. Yeah. And I, I think also, you know, there's this idea that women are trained to protect masculinity. You can't make a man feel inferior, you know, in a very hetero cis minded society we've grown mm. up in right yeah and that was something like oh well don't step on the toes of a man and make him and like you know and you've been in situations whether it's a father or a brother or a boyfriend and they're struggling to figure something out and you're and you're like well I know exactly how to fix this yeah but I have to step aside for their fragile masculine ego you know and that's such BS and women should be confident in handling and fixing it, changing a light bulb. Or I've even seen girls on dates with their boyfriends at a bowling alley, and the girl is like really overly like, I don't know how to do this. I'm like, you throw the ball, and you should kick <laughs> you your boyfriend's your ass. In the holes and, you just and you throw the, the damn ball, kick his ass, make him show up and be better. Yeah, you know, yeah. and so. You know, it shouldn't be this, we shouldn't be limiting our own capabilities for protecting fragile masculinity and really stop gendering um, tools. All my tools are pink, Yeah. you know, as kind of a statement to that too. Like, it's a pink hammer. Are you willing to pick it up now? <laughs> <laughs> it's still going to do the same damn job. <laughs> it's still the, um, the same damn job. But, you know, it's kind of my, my joke about it, too, you know. So it's, um, I'm, I'm happy that you got to see that part of my, my world. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I'm down for your project. You should do it. Yeah, I think we should do a collaboration, really. <laughs> I'm, I'm all for it. Wouldn't that be fun? That would be so fun, really. Because it's oh also like, it'd be quite like this, you know, the whole duality thing. And I'm like, looking the way that. you do and looking the way I do. And I'm like, the brain is the same. The objective is the same. Watch us get it done. Exactly. Exactly. It is the same. It's just, just do it. And I think, too, being in a relationship with another woman, mm -hmm. there's always the question from people of, who's which the is man? another idiotic, who's the man? And then yeah. my thing is, you're a man? <laughs> I didn't know you were a man. <laughs> you know, um, but it's like, this idea that there needs to be the male counterpart to mm -hmm. protect the fr fragile, you know, it, it's such an archetype that's yeah. been programmed into people. And when we kind of scramble that coding in people's minds, they're like malfunctioning. They're like, wait, what, what? Yeah. <laughs> There's not confused. They step for the wife on a person. <laughs> yes. And then, and then you come back with it as you can do it too. Yeah. And I will show you how yeah. that really dismantles that archetype because it's not just saying this is what I do it's empowering other people to do the same and to also do it their way indeed and I think it also takes like the pressures off that like other men who experience that toxic masculinity you know oh because my god yes like, you know uh, my dad was completely hopeless that uh caused yet <laughs> you know if there was a breakdown that hood would come up and you'd look into it and I could just see that like 
nothing's the, happening. This distraught in his mind. He's like, confusion. I don't know. Um, it, that's okay yeah. because like he was an academic and I totally, I remember seeing that. And mm-hmm. I was like really into that sort of thing. So would have appreciated having somebody around to be able exactly. to teach me this stuff. I didn't necessarily, you know, I didn't expect it of him to mm-hmm. be that person, you know. But um, society expected him to be that way and he exactly. felt incompetent. Yeah, because yeah, he had a math brain and that was like his thing. And I think that like, you know, perhaps, you know, doing those videos or something like that, being presented even by women, maybe it becomes more approachable for other men to look at it and go, oh, I think so, too. you know, then they don't feel so intimidated because they have their own demons that they have to fight within the exactly. same system, you know, exactly, because it is simply a learned skill. Mm-hmm. You're not born knowing how to use a hammer, you know, yeah. it, it's a skill that is taught and learned. And yeah. whether you learn it from a relative or YouTube or by trial and error, it's a skill that's learned and not everybody like us has the drive to tinker and figure out these skills. Yeah. But there are people that I'm sure are interested, whether they're whatever their gender is, and mm-hmm. especially the men that feel like I'm supposed to be born to know how to instinctually fix everything and I have no clue what to do. Yeah. You know, that's kind of the message they receive too. And you're right that that presenting this as a skill for everyone could be really beneficial. Talking about your hands-on approach to things, this extends <laughs> as well to your work as a producer, where you take on roles like choreographer, lighting designer, and director, as well as, of course, performing artist within the show. Is Beauty mm-hmm. of Burlesque your biggest production to date? And what was slash is your vision for this showcase? Beauty of Burlesque is absolutely my biggest personal project to date for sure mm-hmm. um i what motivated well there's a few reasons what motivated me to to begin the show and one one reason was i started getting cast types or only hired for inclusivity points like oh we must have a gay girl in the show and mm-hmm. i noticed that that there was only one queer woman one black woman one male and I realized that producers were trying to create an inclusive cast, but failing because they were just typecasting and checking a list. Like, okay, if, I, if I'm if i going to have an inclusive show, I need to have one of each. And now as a producer, that's a very lazy way to go about creating an inclusive show. Yeah. And I noticed this and I'm like, wow, I only get booked in June. <laughs> <laughs> oh, because June is Pride Month. And oh, okay. okay. And, I'm, and I'm like creating new acts and I'm like, wow, you know, I have so many new ideas I'd like to try out, but no one's going to take the risk on me because a lot of producers at that time in my, in my journey were casting people in a very safe way. Like, we know this act is successful. We mm-hmm. know the audience will like this. There was zero risk in booking certain performers with certain acts. And there was no, nothing shocking, nothing pushing, nothing challenging the way a burlesque show is created. Mm-hmm. And so I was getting frustrated 
and I'm and I am sure everyone else that had a similar experience was also getting really frustrated. And then even so, I was becoming the only queer female performer that was being booked too. And I was like, oh, this is not okay, (laughs) you know, because there are so many other amazing people. And there was like only a handful of black female performers that were getting casted and like two, you know, gay men that were getting casted. And it was really becoming very apparent that we were becoming typecasted yeah and to like fill tokens. something tokened exactly and I was like oh no 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 and and also meeting a lot of toxicity in the I guess the scene because I I was seeing a lot of threat being handed to people um, a lot of control that you you are my token person and mm-hmm. I was like oh my god this is just this is just going to destroy the burlesque community mm-hmm. because we're not going to be able to evolve and move forward because this isn't a community this is acting like a monopoly on a certain kind of performance structure so I was like I have to dismantle this yeah in my way and there's a lots of other producers that have contributed to dismantling that as well but I was like I I need to shift this because I don't feel comfortable participating in this way. And so that really motivated me. I was like, I really want to bring out a really authentically diverse show. And what does that mean to me? And what does that mean to the community? So I really sought out people's opinions as well. I'm like, well, this is what it looks like to me, but what does it look like to you? And Beauty of Burlesque, is a project that has been created by not just me, but a community of people and their opinions, their voices have contributed to what it is now. And I met a lot, a lot of backlash. Oh, really? Major, major backlash. Um, And I don't think a lot of the LA burlesque performance community wanted to see a queer woman presenting a show at the caliber that I presented and tough shit. (laughs) (laughs) Suck it up. (laughs) Because it certainly looks spectacular. Absolutely. Like, well done. Congratulations. Thank you. (laughs) And it's a show where I do star in the show, but I'm not the only star in the show. It's Mm. not a show about me. I perform last because it it helps me run the show. Get it. Yep. <laughs> I it's perform more practical last than anything. It's more practical. <laughs> My point with the show is that everybody gets the same opportunity. When that means they get the same lighting at their disposal, the same real estate, the same amount of the stage. Nobody's performing in front of a curtain or only on the floor. Like everybody gets every performer in my show gets everything yeah, and they get the option to utilize all the tools that I have to offer. I also don't book people and say, you know, I want this act and this act and this act. I say, Hey, what do you want to perform? And I say 90% of the time we go with that act. I've had performers create visuals for themselves. And if they can't do that, I'll create the visuals for you. Mm -hmm. I collaborate with my performers so that it's 
something that they are proud of presenting because maybe they're sick of performing that same act a hundred times and they want to try something new and I'm willing to take the risk. And for a lot of people, it's scary because they're worried, you know, as a business, the consumer, the audience member is going to be unhappy. I've really, as a producer, taken on that my performers and their expression is priority Mm-hmm. and the audience is there to view what they have to offer I think turned out quite well I think everybody that sees the show is really happy and it's truly a different show every time because the performers have the ability to express themselves in the way that they want to even like what was it Valentine's Day our opening show in 2019 yeah. Pearl my friend Pearl from Drag Race oh, was yeah. like you know Toss yeah and I was like and he, and he was so sweet to be in the show and he was like you know I'm so sick of performing the same shit that I'm always booked to perform he goes I want to perform he's like is there everyone always asking is there any limitations of what I can't do and I go as long as it's not illegal I'm gonna get me arrested <laughs> like go and for the show it shut you down, know then we're good yeah I was like go for it because and, there's also that trust know, in the performer you know yeah I really trust and I think it's really been a successful way of producing. And mm-hmm. I hope it inspires other producers to give more, take more risks because yeah. it, it, it's exciting and it's entertaining. And, it, and also if your performers are happy, everyone's going to be happy. And so for our Valentine's Day show with Pearl, <laughs> Pearl says to me, well, I really want to do um, a cop destroyer number for Valentine's <laughs> Day. And, you know, people don't take risks for Valentine's Day. And it was just all this, like, really explicit. <laughs> it was really <laughs> explicit. And, you know, you think Valentine's Day, we have all the glam and the fluffy and the romantic. And then yeah. you have Pearl come out full BDSM saying, like, like lip singing this crazy explicit audio about cock destroyers. And I just was like, well, happy fucking Valentine's Day. Yeah. Like, hello. <laughs> you know, and... <laughs> And it made me so happy to take risks like that as a producer because it really is shocking and it's entertaining and it's pushing the boundaries of what a Valentine's Day show could be. It's like it doesn't have to be consumer-based. It can be art-based. Yes. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it's Valentine's Day, but exactly. It's not It's not all going to be red roses, honey. <laughs> They're going to have no. some thorns. <laughs> exactly. And, and you cool know, too. things like that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And I think it's too, like, the people I've grown up around, like, Amanda Lepore is a good friend of mine. And, you know, just seeing her when I was younger, like, walk out butt naked on stage, pull a lipstick tube out of her vagina. I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, she's butt naked in public doing her lipstick, pulling a lipstick tube out of her vagina, you guys. This is iconic. <laughs> you know? And it's... And it, that kind of attitude that I really respect and admire in in performance artists, really. And it's that bravery that gives people that are watching these shows permission to be brave themselves. And it doesn't mean they're going to go on stage and pull lipstick tubes out of their vaginas, but mm-hmm. it gives them the, the freedom to, when they see somebody on stage doing something, it gives them permission to be badass themselves. Yeah. For me, all these things are so much more important to me than the profit of the show it's really a passion project but I do make sure everybody gets a fair rate and it's really important you know that Mm. everybody feels 
like a star because they are. You know, it's a galaxy, not just a one star in the middle of everything. 2020 aside, um, hopefully there's going to be more beauty of Burlesque in the pipelines. Oh, yes. And I, I, you will be the first to know because I'm announcing it this week. I have been working really hard on creating a Halloween experience for everyone. And mm -hmm. I think it's taken some time because this year we were originally going to begin touring the show. And that obviously had to get canceled. Yeah. But this year, we are creating a feature-length burlesque movie that oh, will wow. be debuting on Halloween. Here in L.A., we'll be at a drive-in movie theater. It's called Beauty of Burlesque Creature Feature. And I've co-produced it with my MC and amazing friend, uh, Sarah Palmer. We have a really rad show in store, and it includes 35 performers from all over the world it's unlike what has been put out there right now and i'm so excited and proud of it oh my gosh it's like we're actually making incredible. a movie <laughs> 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 and i can't believe it i'm like i'm like okay we're making a movie now and so you know that might i, I think this might be my most ambitious project to be real mm -hmm. um but i'm everybody today is we're finalizing their submissions and announcing the show, I believe, tomorrow. So you're the first to know oh, about fantastic. Beauty of Burlesque. Creature feature will be available on Halloween next month. Awesome. And very excited. Very, very excited. So, so Beauty of Burlesque stoked. carries on. <laughs> <laughs> it lives and what's exciting, too, is everybody can actually watch the show now. Yeah, amazing. We have been recording this for about four or five months now. It's a scripted movie, and it's been produced with Universal Studios. Um, mm -hmm. Well, it's not a Universal Studios project, but the guys working with us are Universal Studios crew. Yeah. <laughs> They're really amazing guys, and it's so fun because now filmmakers can contribute to the performance element of the show, creating something that is pre-recorded, but it... Um, Everybody's contributed from around the world to participate in the Halloween show. All the ghouls, all the creatures <laughs> and ghouls from around the world. And it's actually going to be a fundraiser for um, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute in New York. Mm. So it's a fundraiser to support our black trans community. Glambassador coming through. Glambassador. Yes, true. You know, you know it needs, the, these are our, our, brothers and sisters that are really I think struggling the most right now so yeah. we have to help protect them and if our art can help raise money for that what what a cool thing to do awesome very much right. looking forward to that yeah your uh, Miss Tosh collection is mm. uh, haute couture pieces known for their fusion of romance and technology with your knowledge yeah. of fashion throughout the ages what makes a piece timeless Mm. you're coming through with the good questions <laughs> you did some research that quote comes from when i was in school because i created a dress that um that sounded motion sensitive sound motion yes. sensitive yes yes i want to see this homework. i'm so interested by what that is and also the g mama's oh. collection I, i'm like, oh my god i need I'm to so see happy. this shit man <laughs> oh i'm so happy that you've discovered all this information i'm actually looking at one of the dresses in my closet from that Oh my God, that's so exciting. Okay, well, I'll tell you about those pieces and then I'll tell you what I think um, makes something timeless. Yeah. Um, 
the quote of romance and technology comes from my first, um, well, I guess I think I've always gone against the grain. Mm-hmm. My fashion department didn't quite like me very much either because I really did things my own way. <laughs> That's kind of been my, my trajectory. Really makes people yeah. mad for doing things my own way. But whatever, I think that's a good sign. I think that means we're doing, we're we're, we're making progress. But um, yeah, your ballet teacher but, started showing you pictures of strippers instead. Yeah, your art hey, people were right? just like, you're too fashionable to be an artist. And then when you were doing fashion, they were just like, what? Yeah. Oh no, they were like, they were like, no, no. So the G Mama collection. My grandma, mm-hmm. I call her G Mama. She's still with us. She's a badass lady. Of course. She inspired that whole collection and you know, being a fashion student, you, I was like, you know, out an art school, I was like, this is the time to make some eccentric stuff and really push the envelope. This is the time to do that. I have the space to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just like, you know, every time I watch a doc in this program or, or hear a lecture from a designer, they always talk about their mother or their grandmother being their core inspiration. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I'm really am driven and inspired by my grandmother and my mom. I was like, you know, this is, I should pay homage like up front to my grandma. This is a G mama collection. And she's a eccentric British lady. Oh, she, you know, started getting tattoos at 50 flying hot air balloons, just like, again, doing things her own way. And so I was like, you know, I really want, and you were allowed to make three um, looks. And I was like, I really want these looks to be modeled by G-Mama and these two other women that really inspire me. One was a professor and mentor, another lady I met on an airplane. I envisioned them dancing down the runway in these outfits. Mm -hmm. And my school was like, no. And I was shocked. They were like, we have booked out such and such model agency. We're under contract. We have to use all their models. I was like, that's fair, but this collection can't be modeled on women under 60 because this collection is designed for women 60 and older. This Mm -hmm. isn't something I designed for young women, and that met a lot of controversy. So I broke the rules, and I called the modeling agency, and I pretended I was um, somebody at the school, and I said, hey, you know, we have a student that wants to use her own models because they're of a certain age and it, it meets her, her concept. Is it okay? Like we can still, you know, is that, is that breach of our contract? And they're like, Oh no, go for it. That sounds great. And I was like, awesome. So I did all my fittings with the younger models. And then on the day of the fashion show, I just had my models show up, my grandma, and the other two ladies and I made them all little pink robes with their names on them and I popped them in the I popped them in the max factor makeup chairs and I'm like these are my models and I made everything <laughs> to fit them I don't know how I got away with it because I was trying to you know pin these things onto these tiny young girls and mm-hmm. and I'm making these for like older women and I, I think I just made I think I made like six garments I think I made a small one for the when I was lying and pretending, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, try, I was like, this is what needs to happen. But it was with good intention. I was just like, okay, here's the little one, but this is going to be the real costume. And my department chair was pissed. And I was like, are you really going to pull these women from this opportunity that's making them so happy? Mm-hmm. And I go, this needs to change because fashion isn't just about 19 to 24 year old 
girls. I go, this is fashion is about everyone at every age and we need to have representation here. Mm -hmm. So they had to let me do it. And, and it was the first time my college in a hundred years of it opening ever had a model over the age of 24 on their runway. And since then, now the school is known for having diverse models because the students following after wanted diverse models. And it really, really broke that down, but it took me to just do it anyways to change that history. Yeah. And so that's where, that's the GMO. I love the GMOMA collection. And it really, I think looking back on it is so symbolic of, I think my purpose is to, to help change patterns in history and, and introduce something new, introduce new thought patterns. And I think um, that collection was my first success at doing that, but was met with a lot of adversity. And I, when I see adversity, it means it's a good sign. Yeah, and you're just like, okay, I'm on the right path. Let's go. Keep going. Honey. Let's go. Let's go. Exactly. It doesn't like make it easy. <laughs> it is true. It is becomes more fuel. And then the the piece, the dress that was about romance and technology was my first garment that. Um, we were assigned to our first runway piece was one look and we had to make a top and a bottom and I made a, a skirt and a top. And at the time, this technology was very new and I actually found a lady in Japan that I met online and she was like soldering the tiniest little LEDs that connect with conductive thread. So mm-hmm. it's very soft, like it's malleable. And so the whole garment underneath the lining and the dress was like hand stitched with all this like led conductive thread with like swarovski on top of it and it was a it was an epic piece i don't think it's the most beautiful aesthetically but the construction of it was insane because mm-hmm. i was over ambitious yeah um it's on brand but the whole <laughs> yeah <laughs> on brand but the whole purpose of the piece was that it was designed with dance and love in mind Mm -hmm. and that the dress would only light up and flicker around her her chest and her heart if somebody whispered to her so the lights were only activated on really low frequency sound and so the whole garment was about whispers the whispering i love you and then the dress would ignite and flicker it was again overly ambitious but it was successful it didn't fail like the unicorn (laughs) (laughs) But the unicorn also didn't fail. It's just, you know, it had to go through its it process, it really. Because look it at it. It's, it's true. <laughs> it's seeing the light of day. It's like, you know, it's in the spotlight She's like, now. girl, I'm here. She is. Oh, yeah. No, I just say I'm her co-star. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone's here to see Nayonce. <laughs> Nayonce. It's <laughs> her name. Yes. Brilliant. No, I always whisper. I always whisper to her, girl, don't you drop me when I get on. <laughs> <laughs> And then I think you also asked, what makes something timeless? And that's a really hard question because I think style and trend is separate from fashion. Mm -hmm. Other people have different opinions, but I think it's separate than fashion because fashion, I think, is something that is a universal language we all speak. We all speak the language of clothing. Mm -hmm. We all shapes and colors and a suit and a dress, they make us feel a certain way. And I think when we 
actively live our lives with the intention of speaking this language. Like we put this on because today we feel this or today we feel this, but we'd like to say something different. We are using clothing as a tool to tell stories, mm-hmm. dressing the part, you know, these kinds of things we hear. When we consciously use fashion to say something that is so powerful, style and trend is something we're told to do. We are not speaking with our own voice. We are repeating something that is said to us, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So I think fashion is timeless itself because it is a universal language human beings all speak. It doesn't matter if you can't speak the same language. We all get a similar feeling from the same garment. Yeah. And I think um, as burlesque performers, we really understand the power of the garment because the garment is what is narrating our story. I think there are timeless shapes and timeless like moments in fashion, but I think something that is truly, truly timeless is our devotion to telling our own story through the clothing we choose to adorn ourselves with amazing boom very well said (laughs) i think that's like an excellent place to uh, to to, to end the interview (laughs) brilliant so ending on the timelessness of burlesque and fashion the entity that is miss tosh thank you so much for joining me on what's the tease thank you so much for having me this has been so incredible and quite honestly, my favorite interview. Thank you for asking such intelligent and brilliant and thoughtful and challenging questions. It's (laughs) really meant so much. Really, these are the kinds of conversations that keep me inspired. So thank you. It is my ultimate pleasure, Ms. Tosh. Thank you.